a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expanding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, Jacob Proctor. He has degrees in geological science, physical anthropology, and he has his master's in carbonate geology. Guys, uh, we have an awesome conversation. If you're into nerding out on planet science and talking a little bit about UFOs, but not too much, but a, a good amount, uh, then this is the episode for you. Uh, Jacob is an old friend of mine. Uh, the last time I saw him, we were cliff diving, and he was teaching me how to throw rocks uh, in the water ahead of me so that I didn't split my feet open, which was fun. So uh, he's a very interesting guy, uh, has some phenomenal stories. So without any further ado, Jacob Proctor. All right, good friends out there in the listening world, ladies and gentlemen, a good special episode today. We have an old blast from the past of mine, Jacob Proctor, on the show. He's going to talk about some amazing stuff. This dude, when we met back in the day, I was like, this guy right here is going to do some amazing shit. And here you are doing amazing shit. So uh, for my audience that doesn't know you, um, go ahead and just tell us a little bit about you, man. Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Brandon. It's, it's, you know, last time I remember seeing you, it was, you were playing a, playing a show for, uh, at Little Woodrow's, I think. And, um, man, it's always, always good memories going back there. But so my name is Jacob Proctor and, um, I've, I studied geology undergrad at, at University of Texas. I did geology, physical anthropology, and then, uh, later went on to, to do my master's in carbonate geology where I ended up doing a lot of work into um, earth and atmospheric sciences in this sort of area. So going out to Belize, evaluating reefs, you know, trying to understand how climate change is impacting the integrity of the reefs. Um, and then sort of in between the grad school and, and all that, it was, um, I was working in, in the energy sector as well. So that was kind of what, what fueled all the, all the, the directions that I ended up going, you know? It's amazing. And yes, and the last time I remember seeing you, um, I don't remember that show. Unfortunately, when I played, I don't know if you remember, I was a little uh, three sheets to the wind pretty much by the first song. So, <laughs> Yeah. But uh, you were always there, man. We always hung out and had good parties down there in Houston. Um, so when the last time I saw you, though, that I remember was when we went camping. Do you remember that? And we did the cliff jumping? Yeah, yeah. That was in Pace Bend. I remember that as well. Yes. And you had your buddy there, the Army guy, right? Was he in the Army or the Marines? Yeah, it was Kyle Lopres. He was Marines. Okay, I'd only met him the once. We hit it off. He's great. He's gigantic. And what yeah. I remember that just sticks out in my mind about you, man, besides the fact that you're like, you've always been cool shit, you've always been very sweet and interesting, and that's what we're going to get into tonight. Uh, but what I wanted to say, though, was when when we were up there on that cliff, it was like, what, 80 feet, something like this? Massive, right? Or was it that big? Or am I... Yeah, no, I, I think it was, you know, 60, 70 feet. It was definitely up there. I mean, it was tall that day for sure. Yeah. And you got some cliff diving or some rock diving uh, experience where? Could you just... It was, in, it was in... Yeah. I mean, with Kyle, we had gone down to, to Greece and gone cliff jumping off on the island of, of uh, Corfu. And, um, it was, it was pretty wild. There was a, a rock climber there that, um, he, he was, he was saying, look, if you're going to jump from this height, you have to throw something in front of you to break the water. And you probably remember that, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, we, we went cliff diving there and then we went to an even bigger cliff, which was in France in in the Gorge de Verdun. And that was pretty, pretty crazy. I mean, they had this gorge went, it was very straight and along the sides, you could actually walk up the 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 strike in the rock um at the the layer of the rock you could actually walk right up it and so you could get really high and um so that was that was pretty intense i remember we kept kind of pushing each other a little bit higher and higher and yeah as you do we got right? up to some pretty extreme heights i think at some point we we hit around 80 90 feet it was really really up there 
it felt very high at the time anyway. Yes. And, <laughs> and this, in the pictures. Oh, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is what I remember about you. So we were up there on this gigantic cliff, whatever. And you said that you turned around and grabbed a rock. I mean, about, I don't know, about the size of a dinner plate. And you were like, oh, grab your rock. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then you told me about that, about how you have to break the water and then jump in because it's like slamming into concrete if you don't. And I was yeah. just like, damn, this is both terrifying and amazing all at the same time. And we did it. It was me, you, and Kyle, right? And yeah. we did it a couple times. It was fun. But your boy, I, th- I mean, because I, the first time we went, we went, it was crazy. And then, and you got to jump right on that bubble from 80 feet away or whatever, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, your boy Kyle was not five feet from me and he pops out of the water with a bloody nose everywhere. I was like, damn, man, that was, (laughs) it was wild, dude. So it was this, this adventure is what, uh, I left you with in my mind. And that's where my memory stays with you again, aside the fact that you're amazing and interesting. So let's get into why you're interesting, man. Uh, besides all the reasons you, uh, your work in geology is fascinating. So tell, tell me a little bit about, uh, how you got started into that why you were so interested in studying them and also jumping off of them we've covered that Uh, yeah so what what got you into that man well i mean to be honest i I wish it was something a little bit more interesting but you know my my dad actually gave me the the interest i mean he was going off to madagascar and kenya and tanzania going on safaris and looking for oil and and gas basically uh reserves in in the jungle and um, he would come back with these wild stories of, um, you know, just getting getting stuck, lost in the forest before GPS and all this. And, and you know, it, as a kid, you're, you're, you hear stories like that. It's very impressionable. And, and so I just kind of always grew up knowing I wanted to do geology. And then when I started getting into it, I realized there's a little bit too much math. <laughs> and I had to, I, I kind of tried and shifted gears to archaeology, anthropology a bit. But then I realized, no, I can do this. And and just kept kept with it but you know it's i think the thing that always drew me to it was getting out to the field it was going out looking for rocks minerals um fossils and and that sort of hobby was really you know what my you know how i connected with my dad on this particular point so um you know it just kind of kept going and and even with my my wife it was the same thing you know we were both geologists so we traveled a lot around brazil um looking for mines and um just to, i mean it was the best way to see the culture see the countryside and um you know it's just it was i don't know something about it it was just you know getting into nature and and i don't know holding beautiful rocks all the time you know I mean, it's, it's hard to beat so yeah you know just kind of like it i guess you know no it, it's interesting and it's so fascinating and yes and what you said about your father and how you you know, feel about it is you, we all think of like Indiana Jones, of course, you know, and then of course, um, Jurassic Park, when they're out there digging up that, that dinosaur, uh, it was so cool. And so these type of adventure things, that's like a childhood thing, man, that's that whimsy. And you're out there putting hands on this stuff and looking and looking at it, like touching it, you know, and I, I like ancient cultures and the old monoliths and stuff like that. I mean, it's and the megaliths of the world. It's fascinating to me. I love that kind of thing. And so have you ever, what's the coolest monolith that you've been to or ancient site that you've been to? Oh man. Yeah. So when I was in, when I was in my undergrad, um, I was in Belize. Um, I went to, a, a an archeological camp in, in Belize and we were five, six hours away from the nearest city and, and really, and there was a big problem with pit vipers out there as well. So, I mean, if you get bit by one of these things, I mean, a helicopter comes in, takes you out, you're going to be dead by the time you get out. So it was a little nerve wracking because you would see them every now and again. But on, on one of the days um, I had off, we, I was out there for about three months. And one of the days I um, went with one of the guys and we hiked down the road. It was all dirt road, obviously paved out, rain, paved out secondary forest. And, um, and so, you know, you're going through kind of, dirty rocky roads um but just hiking I, we didn't have any we didn't have a car at the time because everyone had the cars out out on camp but this was our day off so anyway we got out there and um you enter into this ancient city it was called la milpa and this ancient city was totally covered in grass and trees and it was so it was so weird you 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 walk into it and you look around you're like well, where the hell is the city and then you you your eye starts to relax and get used to the shadows. And all of a sudden you see that there's hills in the middle of this forest. They're not hills. They're, they're like pyramids that are covered in 
dirt and earth and the forest has just taken over these pyramids. And, and so it was, it was so wild because I mean, this was a big city. I mean, we walked for half three quarters of a mile throughout the city. It was totally covered in dirt and forest and it was just undiscovered. And I was sitting in it like six hours away from the nearest anything. And it, it was just a very surreal, uh, never, never forget kind of experience, you know? Yeah. Well, did you ever report it? Did anybody ever go back and go, you know what? That was undiscovered. We're going to call it Proctorville and you've got it. <laughs> no, it, it had already been, it had already been discovered. It just hadn't been fully excavated. Gotcha. And so like the way it works is, you know, th- there were, there were digs that were known and, and actually what happens is, is they go and get pillaged. And, and so you'll go out to these things that are totally covered, but you'll see looters. They've, they've trenched basically straight into the mine or straight into the, um, into the pyramid. And so what they would do is they would just take whatever they could find and then sell it on the black market. Um, and so the archeologists that were coming in were going in and basically trying to recover whatever they could recover and also preserve like the, the layers that they were able to pull out the artifacts because that tells them something about the age, you know? Damn, that's cool, man. It's so Indiana Jones, it's so cool. Yeah, that was a pretty wild story. I mean, and what was really neat about it is, of course, there was a vine hanging from one of the one of the pyramids. And of course, you know, we decided to climb up the side of the pyramid. And that was neat. It was really cool, you know. But that was back in, that was 2004, um, 2003. That was a while ago now. But still, great adventure. Well, not to put you on the spot, but if you have some pictures of it, I'll put that up in the YouTube as we're talking about it. Cool. Okay, yeah, cool. yeah. Yeah. So YouTube audience, uh, check that out. You're welcome. Uh, Jacob sent those. Thank you, Jacob. Um, it's fun time traveling in this way because that's it. I, I'm asking you now, but we'll get it in the future. But people are seeing now what I asked you for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doing a video recording. Yeah. Time, uh, time travel. So w- with all of your adventures, what, what's been like your the one that you didn't think you were going to make it out of? Ooh. Well, I had a bit of a trick. I got into a bit of a, well, there's, there was, there was two occasions. One, I, one was probably more serious because my wife was pregnant during the occasion. And the other one was probably actually more dangerous. So the, the more dangerous one was where we were, where we were actually, my wife and I were, uh, we were multi-pitching on crystal. So there's a, a, um, you know, the big Jesus in Rio de Janeiro. So I, I, I was, I was living, I lived in Rio for about four or five years. And during that time, we would we would go rock climbing throughout the city and um, and in in the neighboring areas. It's, it's got some of the most um, uh, it's it has basically the most amount of urban rock climbing anywhere in the world. And so, the, you know, the Cristo, you can actually climb this thing. And um, we were we were going up this 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 climb and um, we had another set of partners that were with us, another two groups. And one of the groups got stuck on this overhang and this overhang, it was, it was totally sheer. So if you get over it, you're, you're free, you're, you're hanging in like with 2000 feet of air below your feet. So you're really suspended. And so we had traversed across this thing, made it fine. And, and we kept going up and, and I was leading this. So, I mean, there was no, like, if you fall, you're, it's pretty, pretty wretched fall. Right. I mean, you're, you're protected because you have a partner, but it's, it's not an ideal scenario um, because of the, the hanging. Well, yeah, because of the hanging. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the hanging of the air and the, no rock to hold on to, you know, that part of it is, yeah. So we, we got up past this point and, and our partners got about halfway through and they basically froze and they had to start backing up and and anyway so they 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 backed up they made it out but we kept going up but my wife's harness started coming loose oh my god yeah yeah and so we had gotten past the crux which was the hardest part of the climb and so i was like yeah led past the crux got past it and um but then this problem with the harness started happening so i had to bolt myself in go down to astrid help her with her harness and she's crying at this point because it's scary as shit and um she, she gets it fixed back in place and meanwhile everyone is below us is crying and going back down so it was just this big kind of hilarious event but you know we ended up getting through it but it was just it was pretty scary because of that particular component of it and um 
I think the other one that was more dangerous though, was when, um, we were, we, we got my, my wife's boat and, or my wife's or her, her father's boat. He had a, a fishing boat. It's not really fully seafaring. And, um, and, but we had gotten on it and decided to, to boat around this Island, um, from the mainland of, um, we were in this, uh, this, this spot in Porto Real is where it was called. It was about an hour South of Rio. And, um, we got onto this boat, Astrid's six months pregnant. And I, I, I didn't really have that much experience navigating a boat, especially not in the open ocean. And, um, and so we hit this, I know it was terrible. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> we, we hit this corner and the, the waves started coming. I mean, these were big waves. They were way over the height of the boat and they were coming from different directions. And so we're sitting here in the boat and trying to get up these waves, hoping that the, the, the motor doesn't drown and then going down the other side and, and 15 minutes into it, I'm like, holy shit, I don't <laughs> think we can turn around in this. We just have to keep going. I mean, this is not good. This is really not good. I was really regretting it, really regretting it. And anyway, we, we kept going. <laughs> it's just terrible. We kept going and, um, Made it through. We both threw up <laughs> when we got through it just because of the seasickness. Yeah. No, we all get it. We all get it. Yes, absolutely. Because of the seasickness. Yeah. Oh, my so God. So we, we had to recuperate for a little while and just kind of, you know, you know, collect ourselves. But once we once we collected ourselves, we got we got to this beach that was on the opposite side of the island in front of the ocean. There was no one there. We went fishing. We caught these these dog fish, these dog eyed fish. And, and they were so we, we threw back the first three or four and then started keeping all the rest. Cause we didn't really, we were hoping to eat the, the fish that night. So yeah, it was, it was a good experience. It was scary in the moment, but you look back on it and it was really fun. <laughs> Dude. Insane. I mean, so when did your book come out? Aren't you writing a book about all this stuff? No, that's going to then no. be turned into a movie played by you and you and Astra like blow up, but you make it cause you're a good couple. You know, that's what I want to see for you. <laughs> well, I mean, the blowing up is a real deal, man. When with kids and you know, that adds a whole nother stress level to life. You feel like you're blowing up all the time and, and you know, it's, it's crazy stuff. But did you name him anything weird, like a direction of the earth or like a extinct animal? <laughs> I named my son. Uh, well, we named him Gowan. Which I don't know if you, you know, like King Arthur, Knights of the Round Table, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Yeah. I've always been kind of interested in Arthurian tale and, and that sort of thing. So, and then my daughter, Sophie, which is, I guess, you know, not, not really weird or anything, but it's a fairly popular name, actually. Nothing short of adorable, of course. Yeah. No, that's perfect. Of course, that makes sense. Jacob. <laughs> um, well, you've got to write this stuff down, dude, and put it in a book. We'll have you back on. We'll get your movie contract worked out. It's all good, you know? Uh, this story just has to be told. So uh, honestly, just tell me another adventure, man. This is, this is wonderful. I've got some other stuff to ask you, but I know my listeners are like, shut the hell up and let the man talk. So please <laughs> give it, give us another. Yeah, there was, there was, there was this one time, um, well, during the whole mining escapades, you know, where we we're going out looking for mines, you know, part of that can be a bit risky. You know, you don't know exactly the people you're going to meet when you, when you get to these locations. And most of the time, everything was, you know, was pretty relaxed. And um, there was one time, though, where we, we went to this small town and this was a, a, a tourmaline mining town. And so they, the, the tourmalines are quite valuable. They move millions of dollars in tourmalines uh, every, every week. I mean, it's, it's a big, big business there. And so um, but they don't see a lot of Americans or really even Brazilians from Rio that, so when when we showed up in a in a van it was it was kind of this odd situation where we had in the previous town we were just randomly going around asking people do you work with rocks like i mean seriously that's that's what we were doing do you work with rocks no oh, darn it and and we were had all but given up and we were filling up the car with gas and there was just some guy that pulled up with an engineering logo on his truck i'm like ah that's a stretch let me just go ask him if he works with rocks and he, and he turned out he, he did actually work with rocks and, um, and he was big into like commercial mining of, uh, certain types of minerals. 
And so we said, come with me. And so we, 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 we walk, we basically follow this guy out to his, his office. And um, he gets on the phone, introduces us to some guy in this random town, you know, about eight hours from where we were. And, um, and so we, we, uh, you know, long story short, we, we went out to this town. When we got there, we got to know a couple of the guys. We bought a few things from these guys, got to know their families. And then all of a sudden, the owners of the mines in the area started to catch wind, catch wind, catch wind that there was, you know, a gringo there. And there was like a karaoke from Rio there. And so all of a sudden, you know, we are being taken up to go meet the Don of one of these mines. And, um, and so we, we head out there, um, to meet this guy and, um, and he invites us to, to his, to his mine. And so he gives us the tour. We look around, all's good for lunch. We sit down, we start eating and he starts talking in front of all the miners, by the way. Um, he starts talking about how, you know, when miners steal from him, he kills them. And I was like, Hmm. Yeah, that's a little creepy. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little creepy. Um, so I was like, oh, you know, this is probably not an ideal situation to be in. And he starts talking about, and he's, by the way, he's, he's right by, you know, the, the governor of the city. So like they're, they're both kind of co-owners in this mine. And they're like, yeah, 10 years ago, you know, there were no rules. Now we're a lot more, you know, we got a lot more rules now, but I'm thinking 10 years ago. Yeah. That's not really that long. Um, <laughs> no, they're probably still skin on the bones back there. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 So he's like, anyway, come on, let's, let's go have a look at my other mine. And, and he takes us down into this other mine and they're, they're setting up, you know, blasting charges. Like the guy, I mean, I have this great picture. I'll, I'll have to send you the great picture of this, this guy with a, like a helmet on with like a candle. He's got a candle here. He's got dynamite right here. He's got wicks right here. He's got empty cartridges right here. And he's got a bunch of stuff in the, in the rock all around me. And I'm like, Whoa, I should probably get this picture and get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So for the YouTube audience, again, we'll just throw these things up as you send them to me. So we'll, we'll work out a slideshow thing here. Uh, sure. It's incredible, man. And you, so you and your wife also own a rock shop in Katy, Texas. Yeah. 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 We have, um, well, it, it all kind of, of spun off from, from these adventures in the mines. And um, at the time, the original owners to the Katie Rock Shop, Bruce and Carol Huff, um, you know, they were interested in, in finding what what, you know, some crazy gringo could, you know, what some crazy American could bring back for them that's living in Brazil at the time. And so they asked us, you know, can you can you can you export some rock for us? And so that set us off on a second. And, you know, we went on many different adventures looking for these mines, but on the, some of the the last two years, the adventure started getting a little bit more serious where we were starting to buy stuff in more larger volumes and um, we shipped to him. And so over a few years, I came back to, to Houston for, for grad school work. And, um, and during that time, I, I had stopped working in the energy sector. And so I was more focused on, you know, how, how do I, you know, make a little bit of money while I'm, you know, a poor old student, you know? So uh, we, we pushed this rock and mineral thing quite hard um, as, a, as another business called Gems in the Rough. And so that um, over time, it, uh, you know, Bruce and Carol, they got to a point where they were, they were ready to, you know, ready to, to close and, and just kind of retire. And, and we had been working with them for so many years. We, you know, we'd gotten to know them quite well. And, um, and so it, that the opportunity arose for us to kind of pick up the mantle. And so we picked it up a couple of years ago, two years ago, just before COVID hit, actually, three months before COVID, which is another kind of story in and of itself. Right. But, you know, every business owner has got some wild ride stories on on, you know, how to adapt during the whole COVID, you know, deal. And um, and so. Yeah, we, we, you know, the shop is located in Old Town, Katy, Texas, so just on Pin Oak, north of I-10. So, you know, the big Katy Mills Mall and that big American furniture warehouse, it's you know, right there tucked in the, into an old, old, you know, single family building. It doesn't look like a store at all. But anyway, so we have, you know, specializations in, in minerals coming out of Brazil. And, you know, my, my general expertise is in the area of reefs. So we have 
these old microbialites, which in microbialites, um, stromatolites are the oldest living known life form on earth. And, and frankly, they think it's the most probable extraterrestrial life form that will be discovered is actually microbial life of some kind, probably on Enceladus and, you know, on Saturn. Yeah. But or so, I Europa mean, it, Jupiter. what's that? Europa on Jupiter, the ice sheet around the outside, they think there's liquid water under it, like an ocean, and they can just drill down there. And if you believe yeah. space is real, then that's cool. That's really cool. I, I like that. Um, but yeah, Enceladus, man, there's a ton of uh, exoplanets and moons, even like you said out there, that uh, could could harbor microbial life like that. And that would be a, an amazing find, right? That'd, that'd be a step in the right direction. Um, it would be just just totally, it would be totally mind-blowing to know that life can evolve outside of Earth. Just the fact that it can do it, I think would be the biggest revelation to humanity, you know? Oh, we're going to segue into aliens right now. So what's your thought? Go. <laughs> well, Classic. I think it's it's improbable that there isn't uh, alien life form of some kind. I mean, you know, there's, there's numerous you know, quantitative uh, approaches that have been developed to try and, and un understand the probability of these things. And, um, it's, and it's just, it's not, it's, it's whether how developed the life forms actually are, you know, and whether they could, they would have advanced technology. I mean, this is, I mean, that becomes a little bit harder to wrap your head around because I mean, there's so much distance in space that, that for even an incredibly advanced civilization would have a mind-blowingly difficult time to make it out of their galaxy and into another another location you need to have some totally non-existent technology that just doesn't exist now you know like <laughs> it could be wormholes or things like this you know yeah, I mean, from our perspective, absolutely. Well, that we're being told, right? Because there's a lot of different ways we could splinter with this, but we'll go with the basic one. So, if if it's if the universe is what 14.5 billion years old, something like that, uh, the Earth is only four and a half billion years old by that model. Uh, so, therefore, I mean, there's been a lot of extra time for life to not only develop elsewhere, but develop more technologically out there. So to answer your question, that is one of the biggest retorts on this is, well, you know, with the vast distances in space and everything like that, how are they traversing that? Because that's not a known technology. Well, I would add to that, it's not a known technology to us. Exactly. So it, it is absolutely entirely possible that the reason that extraterrestrials or any other life form would come here from any distance at all, no matter how perceivably vast from our perspective, then the answer to that question would be because it's not hard for them. They just do it, you know, kind of like how an ant marvels at us for being able to get in a car and drive off. It, it's yeah. the connections cognitively just aren't there for us to be able to comprehend that sort of technology. And, and yeah. it's like, um, I forget, I always forget this. This is the one I try not to forget. But anyway, it's it's any, um, you know, advanced technology to a primitive society would be indistinguishable from magic. And I know somebody's yelling the answer out there. Just comment me. Thank you guys very much. Um, so, uh, and that's the truth, man. It's, it's we don't know what the hell it is. And, and to further that point, that's just the extraterrestrial element of it. That's a small sliver, a small, you know, surface level layer. That's where everybody starts. And then you get into like, Interterrestrials and a hollow earth theory and then you've got like you know the lizard people and interdimensionals which is really really cool and then future humans coming back in time machines i love all of them man i think i think it's so much fun and uh you know it's because i i think that that these kind of ideas arise is because people are just trying to figure it out science hasn't recognized it as a science so we don't have any money or time or energy behind it other than what independent people are willing to commit to the study of this on their own and this is why you get so many amazing theories with it. I mean, it's kind of this odd deal. We might get more firm theories fed to us by mainstream science, but I mean, with all the other cool theories, it just opens your mind to the possibilities. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, like Jules Verne is a great example. I mean, he was he was almost soothsayer-like with what technology he was able to predict. And, and in many cases, a lot of people believe that technology often arises because of the stories and the fantasies that get created ahead of it. And, and so, I mean, I absolutely agree with you on that for sure. It's just so cool. And it'll just blow your mind thinking about it. And that's a lot of what this show is about, man. We've got cool stories from adventures from around the world, which I'm glad to add, man. I mean, you're, you're just so cool again. It's just, <laughs> it's just cool to catch up with you, brother, and to see that you're doing so well. Uh, okay. Well, um, then what are your thoughts on 
extraterrestrials. I mean, is that your favorite theory that they're coming from other planets or have you heard any other things or have you entertained any other thoughts on it? I, I think that, that if they are traveling here and I mean, given all the new evidence coming out, I mean, I think that there is fairly compelling evidence that there are, there is technology, you know, like wandering around and it probably contains aliens, but it could just be drone technology from other, <laughs> other areas. Right. I mean, if, if, if they're coming through wormholes or parallel dimensions, you know, through quantum theory or, or some other, you know, physics that we haven't understood, which is more likely what's happening. If they're coming through some other physics, we don't understand then more likely it's something to do with parallel dimensions um, or and or or and or wormholes. <laughs> and um, yeah, it just seems that that, you know, antimatter is is something that could eventually be harnessed if technology was developed enough. You know, you could potentially hold open wormholes if 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 that technology was really understood. Um, and we fantasize about it now, but that doesn't mean the science won't be there eventually. I mean, from our perspective, it's kind of like a manatee creating CERN. You know, it's it, we we just don't the gap in understanding that we've got, I think, between what we're capable of doing and even comprehending is nowhere near what they can just walk outside and whittle like the equivalent to us just grabbing a stick and whittling it. You know, it's that that quick and seamless for them because they operate in a different dimension is one of the thoughts is one of the ideas. So um, yeah. with with everything going on with disclosure right now, I mean, do you think that it's possible that we'll see uh, alien contact in your lifetime or that the U.S. government will recognize Fuck, it? I hope so, man. <laughs> I hope so. You know what else I hope? I hope that it becomes accessible to actually get into space. I, I, I think I would be happy if I were to die knowing that there was people in mass going into space. You know, I think something about that would would mean I've lived through one of the most important eras in mankind, I think. Absolutely. You know? Man, I gotta I gotta have you on with David Weiss, man. Do you know who that is? You know the name's actually familiar. I'm I, let me look it up. I'm gonna have to look this up. Please tell me tell me up. about David. Please look this up while we're talking about it, because I want to see your reaction when you realize who this guy is. Because I wanna talk to I wanna have you, a planetary science scientist, talk to this guy. Because uh you know, the understandings of reality is something I've really been playing with a lot lately on different ideas about what this place is, you know, and then you go through the simulation idea, uh, which Amy Belair and I just had a great conversation about on the show. And um, you go you go through all of these different ideas and you eventually land on David Wise. Mm -hmm. Did you see who he was? Yeah, flat earth theory, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I would love for you two to sit down because what he loves is people like you that it's erroneous there's no fucking way like that's that's the kind of guy he wants to talk to because I'm sitting there going yeah NASA's lying to us and he was just like oh man and for him it's more fun to talk to people like you yeah yeah well I I, I love engaging on controversial topics so it, it's it's always fun you know I mean people a lot of people have have an interesting perspective and it, it's you should hear it out. You know, it can change the way that you've developed your own perspective on on you know the truths that you understand, you know. See, guys, I told you I told you it was cool as shit. Uh, that's the idea. That's the science mind that we need right now, man, is that kind of conversation right there. And it, yeah. we've been doing a lot lately about where the philosophy meets the physics, where the spirituality meets the science. You know, we've been really trying to integrate and marry the two are actively doing it, successfully doing it. So yeah. having folks like you, the open mind that you do, man, it's a it's a big deal. So working with all the rocks that you do, um, have you so there's of course a new age movement and I'm sure that you guys facilitate some of that in your shop that you have about the power of crystals, the different things that they do, the different healing properties and modalities. Uh, do you dabble into that at all? So my, my wife is getting into it a lot more. I mean, where I haven't actually gone too deep down into it. I mean, I, I understand kind of, you know, the general, the general idea is that um, the rock has a chemical compound in certain elements that make up the rock can have enhanced, you know, the human uh, ability to deal with, um, you know, negative or positive forces, basically. So like uh, a conductive rock, you might be malachite, which allows you to channel certain energies because it's a conductive rock and it's filled with copper and which is a conductor, 
right? And so there, there's certain there's certain components of 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 metaphysics which which I find uh, really interesting because what they've done is is they've they've actually evaluated the true um, elemental characteristics that that make up a compound, and they're saying that if you get this in enough concentration or if you apply this to certain areas then this can actually give you physiological benefits and um and i don't think that's really an altogether new thing i mean this is something that that you know people have meditated you know that that are deep into meditation they, they are able to create a lot through through meditation and and you know they're not necessarily using a conductor of some kind they you know they study it for decades and but you know I feel like the metaphysical, you know, imbuing properties into rocks in this way, it can help to channel, you know, some of these meditative feeling, you know, processes that normally takes people many years to get. And so I think that's kind of what the field of metaphysics is really doing is it's allowing people in a more accessible way to, to, to find, you know, um, to, to find help or to find healing or to find strength or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, all the different elements have different um, attributes that can, you know, augment our moods or, or our general physiology. And so I, I think there's, there's, there's a healthy amount of, of mythology, which is really required to make anything work in the human psyche. And then there's also that, um, that true component where there is actually elements in some of these rocks that can help you. Like, for example, amber, you know, I mean, Actually, if you look at the chemistry of amber, um, it does give off chemicals. It, it excretes chemicals from the amber. And so, if you're if you have children that are are you know cutting teeth and they're they're feeling pain, then the amber gives off like a pain suppressant, a natural pain suppressant that can actually it's like actually can can help with the the teething process. And that's not really a as a metaphysics talk. I'm talking like chemically speaking, it does go into your body. And, and it can actually help with the, with, with minor, it's not a huge amount of pain, but it's enough to actually, you know, calm the children, the infants down while, while they're cutting their teeth. So we did for both of our kids and, and it, it helped. That's amazing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, some different minerals have, have stronger, um, you know, attributes, some that actually really properly manifest, you know? And to the amber in the mouth thing, I mean, it could be a couple of things. And this is kind of a point I wanted to make as well, is that maybe it's just psychological for the babies because now they have something else in their mouth to think about and to interact with rather than their wound or them feeling bad or something like that or them teething, the teething process, which is painful, right? So uh, another thing is, is like to all this metaphysical stuff, man, right? A lot of people look at it as woo-woo. A lot of people get a ton from it, which kind of leads me to the conclusion, like I've said a while now, that reality is literally what you make it and what you think it is, you know, on all levels. So even dichotomies exist in a dualistic universe in such a way to where it just always complements exactly what you want to experience here is one idea. Now, uh, whenever you talk about um, this being a mindset or a dichotomy, just like anything else, like, any, you know, in the, and we need that psychologically just as, as whatever we are, uh, then to the people who believe that the rocks do something, there could be an element of a placebo effect. You know, there could be because there's a story wrapped up into it, because there's some mythology, like you said, there's something to engage in and interact with intellectually. And then that allows you spiritual freedom, which is wonderful. I mean, I think that's great now. But I like the fact that you're talking about actual science that uh, is really involved in these minerals and different properties like that. So what's what's another cool one? So another another mineral that that I really like is is formalin, obviously, because of, of of you know the experiences we had going through Minas Gerais in the center of the country of Brazil, and um, but the minerals themselves are just beautiful. Um, they they come in a variety of colors, you know, pink, green, um, you know, blue, and and they have this watermelon color as well. Um, but they create the most spectacular specimens, you know, the, um, they're, I'm not certain about the, the metaphysical properties of those guys, but in terms of just natural beauty, they're really a fantastic mineral. And, um, the stories as well of, of where you find them and, and the people that surrounding these things are, are what makes them, uh, 
also pretty neat too. <laughs> yeah. And that's a shirt you should make for your shop or sell it online or something like that. And it just on the front, it says, do you work with rocks? And on the back, it says, I work with rocks. And then yeah. just sell that from your story earlier. Uh, well, yeah, cool. exactly. tell me, tell me about the work that you're doing now. So, um, yeah, I mean, at the moment I'm, I'm working for a, a service company. So Halliburton, um, in the oil and gas industry and, and, we're working quite a bit with um, with actually we, we image rocks with CT scanners, and and then once we have these these volumes, these image volumes have been created, we we try and understand the properties of the rocks. And what's been interesting about this is um, you know the industry is actually moving in the direction of carbon sequestration, which is actually I'm really excited to hear about because it's it's all the the technology surrounding um, carbon sequestration and doing it right um, is is well evolved in the oil and gas industry, and so it can be carbon sequestration. Is you sequestering carbon? That's right. So the, the the idea is that we need to bring take carbon out of the atmosphere and and bring it either back into the biology of the earth, um, so the trees and the forests, or we need to bring it into the oceans. Um, and, and let it kind of go get out of the atmosphere that way. And then the third way and, and the best way is to permanently bury it in the ground, in the subsurface. Um, because when it gets into the subsurface, it can be trapped there for millions of years and effectively it's, it's brought out of the carbon, out of the, the carbon sink, basically. Um, and, and this is kind of the goal. The problem is, is we have too much CO2 in the atmosphere, which is creating a, a reverberation between the upper atmosphere and the ground. And so this heat just kind of cycles and it can't escape because the CO2 traps it, right? And the CO2 and the methane. And so what the, you know, the utility companies and, and the oil and gas companies and the governments are now pushing is that, um, you know, tax credits are going to be provided to those that are, are showing their, their, you know, carbon neutral or, or carbon negative. Um, not carbon negative, carbon neutrals is about as good as what a lot of people can get to at this point. But some of these technologies like geothermal, as an example, can, can really help to, in certain parts of the world where, where geothermal is possible to actually be used, you can, you can create some sustainable energy that way. But the, the carbon sequestration, I mean, the goal is we need to get this, we need to get CO2s out of the atmosphere and into a safe place where they're not going to cause heat, uh, not cause the earth to continue warming. And so um, that, that has been kind of an interesting, you know, change in the industry. Everyone all of a sudden is, is it's not a surprise given the politics of what's been going on recently and, and um, the reality of, of global climate change, right? I mean, so this is all something that, that has to be mitigated through science because it's being created by us, that we have to fix the problem. You know, there's a lot of experts on the other side with a ton of data that say that humanity does not have the carbon footprint that we think that we do, that the earth is actually handling it, adapted to it, and is absorbing it just fine. And it's actually cooler than this time a long time ago, in like thousands of years ago, where there was no humans emitting any level of carbon at all, uh, other than like their fires or something like that. And I don't think they were they were doing any kind of damage like that. And it was hotter back then. So a lot of people would argue that this is just a cycle that the earth goes through. This is not that this has to do with solar cycles. This has to do with where we are as we traverse around in our galaxy, um, around the outside there or whatever. Uh, Milankovitch cycles. Yeah. Oh, sh of course you knew asshole. Yeah. You yeah. handsome son of a bitch. So, uh, so, so it, it's, pa so paleoclimatology. So th this is an entire field that's budding. It's, it's blossoming right now. And, a lot of the work is actually happening. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of work happening in different places, but, but um, when in grad school, they were really focused on this. And so the, the reality, I'm going to draw something real quick here. So this is, this is, um, let's call this, let's call this present day. So over here you have, have, well, you're not gonna be able to see this. So over here we have present day. And if we go back in time, we can see that yes, there are proxies for the temperature of the earth and they oscillate. And, and they oscillate according to a lot of varying input parameters. So part of it has to do with how many glaciers are on the surface of the earth. 
part of it has to do with the position of the continents because the continents have been moving. Um, and so when, when the continents have fully separated, it's created um, ocean circulation cells. And, and that's only really happened in, in the last, um, I think it's basically since the Eocene. It's been about through, oh, I don't want to say this on, on the podcast. I might get it wrong. Do but it. Just say it, a number, it, dude. Been, people been, will blast you in the comments. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> and it's, if nothing else, been, it'll make people look it up and, and try and prove you wrong. And so they'll learn something new. So go yeah, ahead. Just say yeah. Say five. Yeah, the, the the big the big event that 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 we are studying, I mean, paleoclimatologists are studying, is the the PETM boundary, the 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 Paleo-Eocene boundary. Because at that point, the Earth actually had very similar rates of increase in CO two as we're having now. And so, what paleoclimatologists are trying to do is they're trying to understand what are the mechanisms that caused the CO2 and, and the earth heat up at the same type of rate that we're experiencing now. And there's no other period of time in, in geologic history where we're seeing this kind of elevation, except for that one moment in time um, at the PETM boundary. Um, and so, but the reality is, is you're right. Every 11 to 12,000 years, we often cycle between warmer and cooler climates. So the last glaciation, we came out of the last glaciation at around 11, 12,000 years ago. So right around 10,000 BC, coincidentally, right when farming and, and all this stuff started blossoming in the human civilization. And so, you know, from 10,000 BC to about 30,000 BC, that was, that was an ice age, an ice age that was going on. And then before that, it was another warmer period. And so there's, there's different if you, if you can think about climate change, it's, it's a function of Milankovitch cycles, which operate on like a 160,000 year cycle. And so when, when you get the, the solar systems moving around and causing changes in the climate, we're talking like really long intervals, like these are really long wavelength changes. But what can happen is that you get a, a warm event or a cool event during a Milank during these, you can be at a peak or a trough of a Milankovitch cycle. And when that happens and you have other factors that are compounding, then you can get exaggerated situations um, that can cause massive extinction events. And, um, and so, so that, that's, that's, and you can see this, you can see the compounding effect of different factors like volcanic activity, so volcanic activity is usually associated with plate tectonics. If you have more plate tectonics, you're having a more active um, ridge in the center of the ocean, which is cre you're creating rock. And while it's doing that, it's giving off CO2 and methane and sulfuric acid. I mean, there's all kinds of greenhouse, very bad greenhouse gases that come out. And, and so that's why plate tectonics and volcanism is associated with you know, climate change as well. Then you get catastrophic things like asteroids coming in, blocking out the light and throwing off the climate cycle that way. And so actually the reality is, is that, you know, um, there are cyclical changes that happen and, but they, they happen at longer length scales, longer time scales than, than what we're observing now. And so what you can actually see, what you can measure um, in Mauna Loa, uh, volcano in Hawaii, they've been taking fairly accurate um, greenhouse gas readings since the 50s. And so um, the, the paleoclimatologists, they, they study climate change based on this data that goes back to the 50s. And so they can see the, um, the, the concentrations of, of greenhouse gases rise over time. And, and the concerning part is that it's not like a a shallow ramp, right? It's, it's like a hockey stick, like, like this. And, and the problem is, is just the science is that if you have CO2 in the atmosphere, the sunlight can get through it. It hits the concrete, heats up, bounces up, it gets reflected back because of the CO2 acts like a reflection, an insulator. So it just starts getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And so these, these, and the CO2 builds up, builds up, and, and we're adding more and more as humans. And so the only solution is we have to take it out of the atmosphere and you can put it in the oceans, but then it can cycle back out to, to the atmosphere. You can put it in the forest, but then the forest dies and decays and actually puts out, um, you know, you know, probably, you know, puts out CO2, methane, every, every, every problem that you get with decaying forest 
that's happening. So there's actually studies showing that that it may not even be the right solution to reforest the earth because of the problem of decaying. I mean, it's going to help, of course. But I mean, the, really, the only solution we have as a species is to get it into the ground and pronto. And so it's it's I'm I'm excited to see that the the oil and gas industry is taking this shit seriously, and um and and frankly, the industry needs people that are conscientious about these things. And so I feel like uh, you know any any advances that I can take that I can help to better the world and it actually gives me relevance and more meaning in life you know yeah why can sunlight go through the co2 but and to earth but not bounce back the other way is it only reflective on the inside yeah so what happens is is you have um you have strong sunlight that comes hits the earth right and as it hits the earth some of that sunlight bounces back and some of it makes it through and so what happens is, is not all of it makes it through. It's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not totally a mirror, right? So some of it does get through and, and, but some of it reflected, right? And so what happens is, is that that passes through, it hits the ground, it comes back up and some of it gets through, but some of it bounces back. And so as you increase the concentration of CO2, this thin layer starts to thicken and it becomes more like a mirror at some point. And so at some point, the CO2 gets so thick that it actually reflects off the earth. It doesn't, it, I mean, the sunlight reflects off the earth. That's when you get like a, a volcanic explosion and, and you've got a very thick layer, but you can have a situation where the CO2 gets denser and denser and denser. And because the molecules are densely packed, they're more efficient at refracting that sunlight back to earth. And so it creates that thermal you know, that thermal runaway effect where things start heating and it heats and it exaggerates and you add concrete, it reflects better and you lose forests, it's reflecting more. And so there's, there's many, many different um, feedback loops ultimately that are, that are, that's tied to this situation. Kind of like what happened on Venus. It was a runaway greenhouse effect, right? Yeah. Where it's covered, covered in clouds because it's hotter than mercury. Isn't that accurate? Not what they tell us, you know, yeah, no, I mean, that's true. Um, the Venus, they think at some point in time, um, you know, was more habitable. Uh, obviously, it, its temperature is like 800 or 900 degrees uh, centigrade or something. It, it's, it's totally in, inhospitable. Um, I mean, I think only the Russians have, have landed on Venus officially. And, um, and so they have pictures, I think, from the 70s or something. That's, it's really interesting to see. But I mean, there's a lot that's not really understood about Venus. I mean, you know, I don't think really anyone really knows what happened there. There was some feedback loop, which is possible to occur on earth um, that, that happened and it got run away and all of the water evaporated. And so it could have had something, something to do with sunspots potentially. I mean, there's a variety of things that could have, could have happened solar flares i mean it's much closer to the sun and so this would have a much stronger impact but um you know they're, they're i mean the science science really doesn't know exactly what happened on venus as far as as i understand and what um, i think is interesting yeah and what i think is interesting is a lot of science a lot of people say what you say about it and then some other people say that there's a guy named valiant thor that came from there and that um he was helping our military with stuff and he was a really cool guy and there were like four people it was like two dudes two chicks and they came from there and they all lived on venus and everybody's way cooler than us and they're big and they got like, <laughs> hands and shit uh, it's and, like john carpenter on mars i mean i love that story good, i mean it's a good story yeah such a good one such a good one but you know i mean the, the reality is is that something like that could happen on earth and something like that probably also happened on mars uh i mean they they do believe i mean there is water on mars not a lot left and they haven't really discovered any any big lakes or anything other uh in the, in the poles they've discovered some very large bodies of water um but they're not very thick is the problem and they don't really have the, there's not really the right um, atmospheric conditions for it to warm up, to become fluid. So, you know, on, on earth, the thing that can happen, and I'll, I'll give you a scenario here. Um, you hear about the glaciers 
calving and breaking off and melting and all this, this situation. I mean, this is, this is a serious situation because um, have you, have you, have you looked at, have you gotten a glass of warm water and put a really big ice cube in it? And it, yeah. it, it does, it's not very effective, right? When you smash up that ice into itty bitty little pieces and you put it in that warm water, that warm water cools off really quickly and that ice just goes away. And, and that, that's because of the surface area. So if you increase the surface area of something, it's going to react more quickly. So smaller, try, try this. When you get a chance, break up the ice, put it in a warm glass of water, and then in another glass of water, use a big ice cube, put it in there, and just watch how quickly each one melts. And so that happens, that, that phenomenon is happening with, with glaciers right now. And so as, as things break up, they melt even quicker. And as they, they melt quicker, um, they change the density in the oceans and that causes the circulations in the oceans to actually change because they're driven by density change and temperature change. Um, so the top water is warmer and it sinks and the cold water comes up in the poles and this drives, you know, circulation cells in, in the oceans. But when the fresh water comes into the oceans, it changes the density contrast, the circulation slows down. And then all of a sudden the water starts warming up even more. And so when the water warms up more, you get more evaporation in the atmosphere and then you get more reflections and things start heating up. And so then what happens and what is already happening is the permafrost. When we start seeing the permafrost melt, that's the, it, the permafrost melting is, is not actually the problem. The problem is, is this, all the dead stuff in the permafrost because you've got like 30,000, 40,000 years of dead stuff that hasn't decayed yet. And that is a carbon sink. So if, if the temperatures keep warming, we can get to a point and, and I hope I never see this point in my lifetime, but we could get to a point where the permafrost starts to melt. You get increased CO2 entering into the atmosphere, methane from all that decay increases the temperature even more. All the glaciers melt, all the permafrost melts. You get into a runaway effect where the temperatures get too warm and then the oceans start to stratify. They stop moving. And that's when that happened once in geologic history. It's happened uh, really one big time. It was the, called the Permo-Triassic extinction. And it, it was where basically 99.6, of all life on earth died, all life. And the, the earth became um, a snowball. Uh, it was covered in ice and but right before it became covered in ice it was really warm and the oceans stopped circulating and so this is kind of this strange feedback loop that can happen with the different biomes in the earth trying to rebalance other biomes when they're being impacted by you know external effects like you know temperature changes more drought droughts you know, heavy rains, you know, the biome reacts to these things. And, and, um, and so all of these things participate in this acting to CO2. Um, and that is the problem. So we need to get CO2 out of the atmosphere. <laughs> that's, that's the key, the key, the key thing that needs to happen in the next 10 years. You know, all of, all of that could totally be true, but I'm just so glad that I know that the earth is flat and that we don't have to worry about any of this stuff. And all of it's just a big <laughs> lie to funnel money. You know, it's a big money laundering scheme and that's all this is. So, um, but no, it's fascinating, man. And I love, I love science talk like this. So it's very cool. We haven't done this like this on the show yet. And I'm, I'm truly grateful, man. So yeah. I, I did want to ask you while you're here, if you had looked into, as a geologist, I'm sure you're interested in the Sphinx. And did you see the weathering that Dr. Shock found, Dr. Robert Shock and Anthony West? Have you heard of this? You know, uh, I, I lived in Egypt for like five years and I got to see the pyramids and the Sphinx when I was a kid. And, and, but I have not heard what you're talking about. Tell me about it. What really? Happens? Okay. So Anthony uh, West, basically a while back, uh, I don't have dates. This is the best I can do is just a breakdown for you. He surmised after just observation of the Sphinx. He's not a scientist. He just had really good observation. And uh, he looked at it and said, well, the water, the weathering on the enclosure, the side walls of the Sphinx where the bricks were 
allegedly hewn out of, then rearranged and you know shaped to build the Sphinx out of. So the enclosure walls had these distinct markings on it that he surmised was weather ero- or water erosion. But the problem with that idea is, is they say that that was the Sphinx of Khufu, uh, Khufu, right? And then, um, but that was only three thirty five hundred BC, something like that. Is that accurate? I, I'm not sure, but yeah, the, the the dates of the Sphinx go back around to that time timeline, I think. And the, but the problem with that idea is the established Egyptian idea is that uh, the water erosion, the way that it looks, Egypt didn't have water like that for tw- but twelve thousand years ago. So it makes the Sphinx at least a lot older than it was. So the other thing was is how the head of the Sphinx and the shoulders and everything looked to be very disproportionate to the actual physiological makeup of the lion below it, right? So what they think happened, and one of the ideas is, is that that was, used to be a lion, and it actually used to face, of course, the constellation Leo on the summer solstice, and that's, um, that was around the time where all that water was occurring. You know, it was very lush, um, very abundant with yeah, life. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So, uh, but that says, though, that the pyramids are way, way older, and at least, if nothing else, the Sphinx for sure. And it's it's very interesting weather erosion. I'll, I'll send you a video, man. Uh, Robert Schock, he's fascinating. He's written written amazing shit. He's a fascinating dude. So he's wow, a geologist that went over there at the behest of uh, Anthony West, and they looked at it, and he did this whole thing. And he's been, like, banned from over there and stuff. People don't want to talk to him. All the Egypt Egyptologists are pissed off. Because uh, Zahi is Hawass. We don't have time to go into that, dude. But I, I'm also curious about... So if you haven't seen that, I'll send you something. Uh, and um, I'll link something down in the show notes for anybody else curious. Um, also, what do you think about the idea that the pyramids were actually uh, electricity conductors? They were gigantic power plants. They had they utilized piezoelectricity under the, under the ground, a long way under Earth, and there's a big aqueduct underneath there. Uh, and the tunnels don't make any sense, but then when you kind of apply the principles that Tesla was talking about, about the energy everywhere, but then they were harnessing actual piezoelectric properties, then yeah, one could surmise that that was some sort of ancient power plant. Do you, what do you think about all that? I don't know. You know, I mean, it seems as though that it's an awful lot of effort to build the pyramids and for them to not have some other purpose other than being a Tomb. <laughs> well, they weren't a tomb. No bodies were ever found and no inscriptions were ever found. There, actually, there was one inscription found, but it was proven to be fake and graffiti from a guy who went up there just wanting to make a name for himself. No, oh, you're, you're talking no, about the Sphinx? Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, uh, yeah. the, the pyramid, the Great Pyramid. So no inscriptions whatsoever and no uh, bodies were ever found in the, in the pyramids. So therefore, that also lends more credence to the idea that they were not for burials. And because if you look at other tombs, they're very ornate. They tell the story and the lineage and all that. They're adorned with gold, even though, you know, some of them have been looted, like you like you talked about about in Brazil. But the, that idea, though, that they no, no uh, bodies were ever found, no graffiti, no markings of any kind, nobody claimed it. Even uh, Egyptians from a long time ago would say, uh, these were here when we got here. You know, we showed up and this was already here. So there's no real claim to the to the building of the pyramids, which is interesting too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I studied a little bit on um, the Ptolemy dynasty, but they were they were the ones that built the the great library of Alexandria. You know, like there was a line of Egyptian. Um, I don't even think. I guess he wasn't pharaoh, um, but um, that was more more in the like. 80, 80 BC timeline um, up until 100 AD. So right around the time of, of Christ, I think. But um, before that, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know a lot about, about the origins of the pyramids. I mean, obviously I've heard many stories about what, you know, some of the different theories out there, but I, I don't, I don't really know enough about it, honestly. Yeah, it's all, <laughs> it's all theories. But I mean, when you, when you factor in the water erosion, when you factor in the piezoelectricity that can be noted and, and duplicated, and then the fact, of course, they were not burial chambers, no inscriptions, all of these things lead up to that their purpose was for something else. And also, yeah. if you look into uh, the properties of um, the obelisks and how those are all over the planet, <clears throat> it could be some sort of interconnected sort of grid, you know, that's tapping into an energy that... We don't know about, but I'm sure some of us at high power, maybe energy companies, maybe your lizard bosses over at Halliburton, you know, they <laughs> could probably be, know could about be. it. Yeah. <laughs> could be. 
So, my friend, uh, we'll we'll probably wrap it up here, man. But I just wanted to throw a couple of, like a uh, you know geologically centered uh, kind of crazy zany high strangeness ideas at you there. So that those are fun, you know. Yeah, yeah. But you know about the the, the point about the obelisk. You know that reminds me of of dragons, right? I mean, dragons are kind of a common theme in in civilization. You see them occurring in different parts of the world that that were totally isolated from one another. And so you have to ask yourself, like, were there really dragons or is there something in humanity that that can in, can see dragons, but not is, 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 is it is the dragon a stretch for something that, that humans want to see that we, we see because we are innately human. And so I guess my point is, is that you know, maybe these structures like the obelisk, which occur in different locations, and maybe they're driven by something deeper in us that we don't understand. And maybe that theme is associated with, um, you know, something organized, or, or maybe it's just something human, you know, maybe, maybe the structures are human, just they, they def define us, dragons define us and our escapism of the world, you know? Yeah. I totally believe dragons existed, but I think the obelisks are penises, dude. Uh, it's a yeah. symbol of power. Yeah. But also, yeah. It, it was probably like a power conductor or something like that, or a receiver, you know, something like that, uh, because of the fact that they cross cultural boundaries, like a bunch of different cultures did it, which says that it may not have necessarily been a deity because they practiced different religions, they practiced different beliefs. So that didn't connect them. What did connect them is similar structures, the three uh, windows and pyramid shapes, pyramid shapes, rather steps, flat top, whatever, that design was always utilized. They utilizing specific grid patterns with water flow underneath them, which again speaks to the piezoelectricity property that they were probably utilizing. Uh, and then you have the fact that it, they had to have been at that point then practical rather than symbolic. Uh, but I totally dig the dragon thing. I, I love that. I want to talk to you about your weird fascination about that later when we, whenever you come on another time. Okay. Sounds Seems great. Like something going on. Brandon, hey, thank uh, you. Well, uh, do you want to be found? Do you want me to link anything or you want to tell people how to find you and your, and your rock shop, man? I'll definitely. Yeah, that sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if you guys want to come over and talk rocks with me you know, or my wife or, or any of the guys at the, the Katie rock shop, come out and visit us uh, just in, in old Katie north of I-10 on, on Pin Oak Road, 535 Pin Oak Road. I'll see you there. Damn, what a plug. That was profesh as fuck, dude. You sound like a radio ad. So um, that'll be that'll be like 50 bucks, dude. We'll work it out. <laughs> uh, no, and I'll link all that in the show notes, guys. Thank you, Jacob, dude, so much. You're fascinating, man. We'll definitely have you back on. This has been a lot of fun, dude. I'm going to get you hooked up with David Weiss, and I'm gonna, we're going to make you a flat earther, and I, I'm going to be here for it. It's going to be great. Sounds great. It sounds right. great. That sounds good. Jacob Proctor, <laughs> thank you, my friend. Have a great good. one. Have a great weekend as well. Thank you. Take care. All right, a massive thanks to Jacob Proctor for coming on the show. Ladies, I know what you're thinking. Uh, he already said it. He's married, so settle down. Uh, none of that, please. All the ways to find him, of course, will be linked in the show notes, guys. Jacob is awesome. Uh, go check out his uh, rock store in Katy there if you live in the area, or check him out online. They have a wonderful website, which will be linked in the show description as well. Also linked down there is the direct contact to expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where the links to all of the socials. That's where you can do all all of it. It's kind of a central hub for everything. Uh, we're working on some merch, so stay tuned for that. Uh, if you want to support the show, Patreon is on there as well, and we are truly grateful for that. Uh, liking and sharing is the best way, uh, and so continue to do that. Thank you guys so much. Uh, for your week this week, guys, go out into it and pick up a piece of litter. Let's keep this planet a little bit better than we find it, and uh, just be nice to everybody that you see. Buy a meal or a book of stamps or a cup of coffee or something like that uh, to any stranger that you meet. If you're in line behind somebody, they got a bottle of water or something, just buy it for them, man. It's a big deal. Uh, and uh, get out of that left-hand lane, of course. Uh, we are in Texas, and we hate that. Jacob, shout out. Uh, you're out of the left-hand lane, and I appreciate it. Uh, as well as you guys just remember above and beyond anything else. Just go out into your week this week, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank y'all so much for listening. We'll see you next time.